the reason why we're excited about this was honestly when we first, before we even talked to Neuralink, we read the article that was posted about an interview with Elon, which was talking about why brain-computer interfaces sound like they're useful. And the reason that it sounds like it's useful, it sounds like it's a conversation around bandwidth. And it's kind of going back to what I said, where you got, I'm processing all these things happening. I mean, I don't even know I'm doing it. The brain has a huge amount of bandwidth compared to your voice or your hands. So if you can start to harness that bandwidth and be able to input and output through that bandwidth, then we're gonna see a step function in what we can do. Hi everyone, welcome to Design Drives. The podcast where we explore why, how, and what design and designers are driving forward. In this episode, I talk with Afshin Mehin in San Francisco, who runs a design studio called Card79 that aims to blur the boundaries between physical and digital design. With Afshin, I shared quite detailed about the future of neural interface design. Neural interfaces are actually a growing field where engineers and scientists explore basically ways to control computers with your brain. With his studio, he recently worked on a project with Neuralink, the AI startup founded by Elon Musk who develops brain-machine interfaces and makes key contributions to the field. We actually talk about the opportunities and challenges for designers to work in such progressive interaction design fields and actually also what we as designers should expect in the long run to happen. We also talk about interaction modalities and potentially useful applications for such brain interfaces. Afshin has a long history working on the section of industrial and interaction design in Silicon Valley, working at companies such as IDEO, Noon Home, Whipsaw, all after graduating from Royal College of Arts in London. So we also talk about his learnings throughout his career, building design teams, working at digital and physical design at the same time, and working with advanced technologies as a designer and what contributions you can make as a designer in such a field. So I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, I'm here with Afshin Mehin. Super excited to talk to you. Super excited to talk to you as well. I've been uh, looking forward to this conversation for a few weeks now. Yeah, really looking forward. We have a couple of very interesting topics we're going to talk about and I'm pretty excited about that. I think it would be great for the audience if you could just give them some context about your background and also how you started going into design because you're you know, super interesting for the audience. Yeah, for sure. I think before we, we started the conversation, I was just explaining um, my family's originally from Iran. We came to Canada a long time ago. And basically, as a typical immigrant family, I was encouraged to kind of pursue the more safe traditional route. So my parents guided me through uh, to, to kind of focus on things like engineering. So I actually started my studies as an engineer. And halfway through that, I discovered this book by John Maida called uh, Design by Numbers. And it kind of flipped my mind. I was like, oh, wow, there's this overlap between creativity and technical thinking. And then I uh, completely got turned on to what that could look like and started to pursue looking into future studies. So I kind of navigated my career to move into like industrial design. I, I studied at the Royal College of Art for my master's. And in between that, I started to kind of look at what the, the overlap was between technology and design. And this is probably around 2000 or so when a lot of conversations were happening around what the implications of technology would be on our lives, how materiality and immateriality would feel. And John, John's lab, the aesthetics and computation group was super inspiring. So is Hiroshi Ishii's lab, 
looking at um, tangible interactions. So things like that got me really excited. And in fact, I did my internship when MIT Media Lab Europe existed in Dublin. Uh, I was working with the Shilo Morin's Palpable Machines group, which is kind of like a similar group to um, to Hiroshi Ishii. So it was all about haptic interfaces. So yeah, that was uh, that was early days for kind of what got it, got me thinking about the ability for design and technology and kind of future facing design and technology experiences to look like and feel like. And since then, yeah, I've kind of just kind of followed along that path. Mm -hmm. And I think you were mentioned before you were growing up in Canada, right? Yeah. So grew up in Canada, my Vancouver specifically, so beautiful city on the West coast of Canada and not a lot of exposure to design per se or design culture, a lot of beautiful natural resources. So a lot of great hiking and biking. And there was an art school there called the Emily Carr I guess it was, a, it was a college at the time. And I would go to their, their library there to learn about design. That was when I was flipping through ID Magazine mm -hmm. and Graphis and like really just like delving into what that world could look like. And then I think that experience kind of guided me. And, and Canadian design culture has always been something that's a nice grounding around like appreciation of like natural materials, working with the like honesty of materials. And so that's kind of been something I come back to so often. It's also very multicultural. So I think it's been a great place for me to understand just the variations and design approaches based on kind of cultural background and whether it's the European design canon or whether it's South American or whether it's Asian, all kind of different approaches to design have a lot to bring to the table. And that was, I think that was kind of coming from the experience I had growing up in Canada. And then when you were finishing up your studies at the Royal College of Art, you moved to the West Coast, right? To start yeah. at uh, Whipsaw. What was the motivation behind that move? And I think you, yeah, I mean, you stayed there. Uh, you're still there on the West Coast. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that as well. These are great questions. Great questions. So while I was doing the, my internship at the um, Media Lab, while I was doing my engineering degree, I was also working in human-computer interaction labs in Vancouver. Um, and I was starting to kind of get a sense of where the things would go in my career if I was going down an academic route. And I really, this is the time where I guess Frog and IDEO were producing their great work. They did like the, the grid mobile computer and then just all the things that were at the cutting edge of hardware design. And I was like, this is really cool and I want to be part of this. So I think I made the conscious decision to kind of focus more on the industry and Bay Area was where a lot of this activity was happening. So I came back to Vancouver, packed up my things came back from London, which I loved. It's a beautiful city with great design culture. And I said, let's try focusing on technology. And so made my way down to the Bay Area, interviewed with a bunch of places, was lucky enough to work at Whipsaw. And this is their early days of 2005 and had uh, the opportunity to work, for, work with a bunch of really talented people and almost felt like I was just starting to learn the ropes, what it means to design and launch product. And this is also where I started to like practice that interface between uh, industrial design and interaction design. There's a few projects that were coming on where there wasn't necessarily a clear interaction model defined yet. And there was no one to work on that, on that side. And so with me having a background in HCI, I was brought on to kind of try and add that to the conversation. And that also was, uh, gave, gave me a taste of what that interface could look like. And that gave me kind of that grounding or foundation. So when I moved on and started my next uh, opportunity to IDEO, I was brought on as like a hybrid interaction designer, industrial designer. So there's some projects I would be working as an industrial designer on and somewhere I'd be working as an interaction designer on. And that really got me excited in terms of being able to flex both of those muscles and, uh, and hopefully 
there was a lot of opportunities where I could use both of them on the same project as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, super interesting. I mean, uh, we actually had uh, Dan Harden also uh, nice. on, the, uh, on the podcast. He's uh, a rock, a rock star. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was super happy to chat with him. And I mean, I, I assume you worked with him also at, at Whipsaw. I had the privilege of working with Dan, yeah. Yeah. So I think what's interesting is also around that time, a lot of the conversations around software design started to emerge, right? And more and more uh, frameworks were established. Uh, I mean, nowadays we are way more specialized into action design or industrial design. But like you can also see a little bit, it's going a little bit back to the hybrid models things start to come a little bit together again if you think about smart home and all of these different areas but how was it back then in, in the industry you saw a lot of you know industries then are going towards interaction design or what was the general because there were no education programs back then for purely interaction design right when uh, this was emerging but maybe you can talk a little bit about kind of the how interaction design where was emerged and sort of picked up from the different designers well i, I think that i was coming up around When I studied at the RCA, I was, I was next door to the design interactions department. So, that, and that was pre predecessed by the computer related design department. Mm -hmm. And then around that time is also when interaction design of Brea was kicking off for their, they had a short stint. And that's where a lot of the team, like it was short, but really kind of fruitful. And so a lot of the people I was working with at IDEO and also I studied with at the RCA around were kind of the early days of interaction design and so I feel like whether it was messing around with Macromedia Director back in the day or starting to just build out some platforms and, and tools in processing or Arduino I think there's constantly like a movement happening there I think it was just a little bit less well defined so mm -hmm. now like it seems like everything is getting a lot more mature around understanding like design systems and really having a very finely tuned machine around how design and dev can work together really, really effectively. Mm -hmm. And the platforms are more well-defined. So back in the day, like if you look back at, at one of these books here, it's called Electric Dreams. And it's basically, it's by the mm -hmm. Victorian Albert Museum in London. And they kind of document the history of elect electronic consumer products. And if you look at the early 2000s, late 90s, Nokia, like phones, they were like, it was like a bizarre world of hardware. Everything You can imagine any form factor they were exploring. And so when we started to settle out and the dust like settled after the big explosion, we landed on the iPhone, that all these form factors kind of started to disappear. And we were like, okay, we now know how we're going to be interacting with this thing in our pocket. And from there, I think everything else started to fit into place. And then you, the software started to become a lot more standardized. So I feel like once these platforms, these hardware platforms get settled out, then the, uh, the software can really thrive. But as long as there's no standardization, it's going to be a very uphill battle to try and get a lot of people to build out libraries and make things consistent and create this ability to kind of build on top of building on top of building on top of, because I think that's what software is so good at is, is modularizing. Yeah, absolutely. That totally was a, a big change, right? As soon as the standardization came with the iPhone and all of these different frameworks like Android, et cetera, right? Things got way easier to build and way more tools on hand. Uh, maybe you can also talk a little bit what happened after you were working at IDEO. For sure. So yeah, I think my time at IDEO is awesome. I don't know if I was clear in my bio, but I love the Bay Area, but I also loved design culture in London. So I actually left IDEO and went back to London for a year where I was working for design studios there. I worked for, I kind of, I've always had a like appreciation for 
more traditional design. And so I work with like Terence Conran, who's a well-known Kurdish designer who just passed on last year, but he's established like a lot of, of the design history within London. He created the design museum back in the day. And then I worked for uh, Barbara Osgerby, their furniture designers. We, we worked on the Olympic torch together. I designed I wrote the grasshopper code for the Olympic torch that has those 8,000 holes into it. It's uh, a lot of code, but (laughs) we made it work. So that was an example. And that's another example where like interaction design and kind of, I guess, parametric design overlap uh, with industrial design, kind of um, systematizing your design process a little bit. That was lovely. And then had my fill and came back to North America, came back to Vancouver originally, and then set up Card 79 in Vancouver. And it's where I was from. And it felt like the right place to start the business. And as a individual who was living in a city like Vancouver, practicing design, I naturally ended up working on a lot of projects that were a little bit more focused on close to body technology. So, and kind of wellness and sports focused stuff because Vancouver is all about the outdoors. It's all about like quality of life. So our first project was designing a pair of smart sunglasses for a company called Recon Instruments, almost these cyborg like glasses where you would have a little micro screen down by your, actually it was your right eye and you'd be able to get information on your speed, your connectivity to your friends on your rides. And so it's an interesting exercise in hardware software design to try and understand how to create a useful product that would be, have all the features you'd want as a cyclist or a bicyclist, whether you're competing or using it for more casual purposes. And then the work just went on from there in terms of being able to be, we did 3D printed flip-flops for walking on the beach. We did yoga pants for Lululemon that helped you moderate your old, your kind of state of mindfulness. So a lot of the work we did early on in the studio was focused on that. And then eventually made my way back down to the Bay Area in 2016 and started working with Noon, which is a lighting system it was a bunch of ex nest people so nest had their amazing smart thermostat they designed and then a lot of the people who were the initiators of that uh, had an idea to design a smart light switch system and it sounded like a super exciting opportunity so i joined them as the head of user experience to help them understand what the smart lighting would look like for their product and while doing that was was also running uh, card 79 at the same time so that brought me back down to the bay area and, and here we are yeah super cool thanks for sharing that i think what's actually quite interesting also is that you i mean you already mentioned that concept around the uh, smart glasses you worked a lot on sort of very progressive interfaces or sort of interconnections between physical and digital design and a lot about new technologies seems like where you have to where you're a little bit in uh, tapping in the unknown because there are not a lot of frameworks out there you really need to explore new things and I think you know then always is the question around like how important it is to have design involved when it comes to early explorations around new technologies so what's your experience when it comes to that having design working with new technologies? It's a great question. And I don't know if the answer is, I think there's a few ways you can approach that. One is as an individual, I very much love the unknown. I love things that don't exist yet. And that's why our studio is kind of branded as fortune tellers, because we just, we like seeing into the future with our partners and the things that are unknown are often the most exciting for me to try and understand. So that just, I just gravitate in that direction um, whenever I can. And I think I also have the side of my personality, which loves creating beautiful experiences for people. And so whenever I see this new technology that seems like it is kind of can go either way, whether it can go being purely like devastating or magical and and kind of 
it's changing society for the better, kind of want to engage with it and see what we can do to turn it into a more optimistic outcome and create something that inspires people. Hopefully it's the company we're working with, but I think that goes back to your point, Sebastian. It's, a, it's basically a question of finding the right fit with a, a company that is looking for that vision and not all technology companies need that insight because the, developing the technology is very, very hard. Like the work, when we work with our partners, we have the utmost respect for how hard it is for what they're building out. The engineering talent, having studied engineering myself, I actually know that it's really hard. And so whenever we step into projects with them, we step in with a, a high level of respect for the amount of challenges that they're overcoming. And so I hope that when we're engaging with them, there is a sense of like mutual respect where we respect how hard it is the technology they're developing. The future insight we bring into what their technology could do for society is also seen as adding value. But sometimes, honestly, it's also just for us because we, we want to see what the future looks like. And so it, to answer your question, there's times where it's benefiting them because they're able to understand how their technology is going to be improving the world or changing the world. And it gives them a bit of a step forward. And just like with any kind of future forecasting exercise you do within a company. It helps you understand your roadmap. And otherwise, it's just something that as a studio, we, without anyone asking us, we, we will want to do that. It brings us happiness and joy. So I recently uh, had an episode around speculative design. Yeah. I'm not so sure how uh, familiar you are with the, the general concept around uh, speculative design. But I think I mean, when, you know, when it's about new technologies and having design involved, it's a lot about finding that uh, application and seeing how it could fit with a human's everyday life. But also, like you said, it's about maybe a little bit more strategic future thinking. You need to look, explore a little bit what the future brings for that technology. But I mean, there's also could be negative outputs as well, right? This has been also part of your uh, explorations and maybe you have some learnings when it comes to that when you're kind of trying to explore new technology, did you try to look at basically both ends of, you know, how could this technology be catered towards something that's very beneficial for people and maybe something that, you know, we should maybe look out to it, you know, it's not applied in a certain way. Any kind of learnings in, in that regard? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that there, the, what comes to mind there is that there's a bit of tension there. There's the, the side of speculative design, which it shines light on those tendencies of the technology and human behavior to, to definitely take things into a, a dark place that are driven by either greed or some sort of need to like or disregard almost for what society would, and humans would benefit from and I think that that's always a very important thing to highlight I also think that on the flip side I as a studio try to engage a little bit more with the engineers and the scientists on kind of the, the technology vectors to be like, what will happen? Because I feel like I don't want to spend my time speculating on things that are have a, a very low probability of happening. Mm -hmm. So if, if we come up with this idea and we're like, wouldn't that be horrible? And then all the time it's like, that will never happen. Like that can't happen. Yeah, and yeah. I feel like we've kind of wasted our time and resources. So I would rather have that, that tension, that conversation where we're like, hey, like we're thinking that these are possible scenarios. And they're like, yeah, that could happen, especially because this new technology is being developed. It's going to make it easier for us to do this, this, and this. And yeah, you, that's valid. And I'd be, oh, okay, crap. Like, okay, then that's, let's have a conversation about that. But I think having that filter around feasibility is important. And I think it just saves us time from going over, because I think that the speculative design that's 
it just doesn't become pure theater. Like if we're just sitting there and watching things for the sake of being shocked, I think that that's, it has its own place and, and that's great. No, totally agree. I mean, it makes sense to have that filter in terms of what's actually a realistic use case. And if it's too extreme, if you can't see it, I really like what you mentioned there. Like the question, like how to we, how can we shape it towards sort of like cater towards positive experiences for people? Talking about new technologies and kind of progressive interaction between hardware and, and digital design. You recently had the experience working on something that's quite progressive when it comes to Neuralink and sort of sort-based interfaces, right? So for everyone that doesn't know what Neuralink is, it's a basic company from uh, Elon Musk, from Elon Musk that works basically with sort-based interfaces. So you have a hardware piece that you attach to your head, but I'm sure you can explain it way better than me. So maybe you can share a little bit about sort of the framework in terms of like that that project, but then also maybe your learnings in general when it comes to sort-based interface, because it's such a new field. Sure, for sure. Yeah, so we were approached by the team at Neuralink back in 2019 to help them try and design what their first product would look like or a product concept would look like. And it was their early architecture was going to be something where they had a external wearable and then part of it involved a surgical procedure to implant. The rest of the technology would be an invasive surgery that would uh, allow the, these kind of neural threads to go into your, into your brain. And the brought on because of our experience working on projects like Recon and other projects where we really understood the ergonomics of your, so we could understand how to design a product that would fit nicely across different head shape, different ear shapes, and also just the ergonomics of how to easily put it on and off. And um, so that project was our first engagement and they launched with their big public kind of release in the summer of 2019. And since then they were able to iterate on the overall architecture and eventually were able to minimize the actual implant so that they moved beyond having the external wearable. And then our second engagement was to help with that new procedure designing the robot, kind of the surgical robot, and being able to design something that could be taking it from where it is used within a research and development lab and getting it on the road towards clinical studies. So designing the casing for it, designing it so that it's easy for operators to use, it's safe for them to use, and being able to have a little bit more consideration of what patients would feel like as well when you've got this big machine about to operating on you, mm-hmm. on you that it does doing this kind of scary procedure to just make it feel a little bit less intimidating and more approachable. So out of that exercise, we help them get to that point. And then as a design studio that works on both industrial design, physical products, and then digital experiences, we started to get curious. So we stepped mm-hmm. away from the, the work with Neuralink and just as an internal project started to explore what thought-based interfaces could look like. And what resulted from that was us starting to look into what the future could be based on, again, what being happening right now. So we started to speak with a lot of neuroscientists to understand exactly what you know, is happening within the field, what the state of the art is and where things could be going and use that as a starting point for developing out our own set of designs around what interfaces could look like. And so at present, we're starting to develop out almost like different scenarios in the future. And I feel like where we are right now is maybe where computation, like the first, remember when Xerox Park and Apple were developing like the first GUI, the graphic user interface, and it was messy and sloppy, but it was like a step up from command line prompts where you're typing in commands. It's like, we're trying to try and figure out what that first feeling is going to be like. It's a little bit more human, more approachable, 
And then also just waiting for the hardware to get figured out. So the hardware still has a long way to go. And then there's so much that's still unknown about the brain. A lot of it is trying to figure out what's the right amount of speculation. What's a realistic kind of path forward? Yeah, super interesting. I mean, it's really developing new modality, I think, in the end. Because, I mean, you still are going to have other kind of modalities for certain kind of actions. I mean, when it comes to modalities, every modality has its kind of pros and cons, right? And yeah, I find this super interesting because it's a basically modality that hasn't been explored yet. We have kind of explored how we interact with AI when it comes to voice. We have explored gestures and all kinds of different modalities, but sort-based interfaces where they kind of open up a complete new modality when the question is like, how does it stack up with other modalities, right? Because, you know, if you think about touch and visual input and voice, they play together hand in hand very well. But like, how does the sort-based interface kind of ties into that whole stack? Maybe you still need a visual feedback sometimes because you're wondering, you know, if that action actually happened. It's just a very new field. So yeah. I'm just wondering, do you have any learnings in terms of, in terms of principles or modalities that you came across on in your research? It's early days. The one thing I, there's, I'll, I'll just try and paint a bit more of a picture. A lot of the work that's being done right now is tapping into your motor cortex, which is the part of your brain that moves your body. And so the ability for us to be able to move seems like it's happening. And it's it's not always this, a one-to-one -one where you're like, you're moving, like listening to some of these, um, the patients who are actually experiencing these, it doesn't always feel like they're moving their body part. They're, it's like the idea of moving something. So it's still a little bit abstract and there's a lot of training that's going on. I think that as a result, there's this one area we work this well-defined. It's I think it's still questionable what other parts of our brain and what other types of thinking we can tap into. Like, I think that Facebook was doing some work and I have no visibility to this, but during their, one of their talks, they said they could start to capture actual words. And I was talking to one researcher that, and this is, this is a top type of thinking called covert speech. So basically having thoughts in your head that are actual, sorry, almost speak in your mind and being able to capture that level of granularity of thought. But for us, and I think for a lot of people where it starts to get a bit murky is that I have, when I speak, my mouth moves and I say a word and it's like, it's very clear. I can have a lot of different things going through my head and there's so much bandwidth. Like right now when I'm looking around, I'm probably processing a bunch of information. I don't know even I'm processing. There's layers of consciousness. So like what is a thought is still undetermined and like what can be read is a thought is still undetermined. So like, I think at some point, maybe there's a, like a neural signal you can pick up that's the equivalent of saying, hey, Alexa. So it's like when, when it hears you say Alexa, then it starts reading everything you think after that. So it knows when to check in because I think constantly pinging you and trying to understand when you're thinking will also be another thing that when we are speaking with our kind of neuroscientist partners, they're like being able to kind of synchronously pick up this information will be a little bit tricky. So having something that lets you know when to listen is going to be important. So that that's... The breadth of the different types of thinking is kind of interesting. The reason, and to get back to your original question, the modality, the reason why we're excited about this was honestly, when we first, before we even talked to Neuralink, we read the article that was posted about an interview with Elon, which was talking about why brain computer interfaces sound like they're useful. And the reason that it sounds like a useful, it sounds like it's a conversation around bandwidth. And it's kind of going back to what I said, where you got I'm processing all these things happening. I mean, I don't even know I'm doing it. The brain has a huge amount of bandwidth compared to your voice or your hands. So if you can start to harness that bandwidth and be able to input and output, 
through that bandwidth, then we're going to see a step function in what we can do. So I think what we're seeing right now, like there's been some research coming out of Stanford where people are able to use handwriting in their mind and be able to type as fast as they can, as a person could typically, sorry, they can hand, they can, they can write with their mind, with their kind of fictional hand as fast as someone can type. So they're, I think it was getting up to 80 or 90 words per minute. Don't quote me on that. And so that's what everyone's kind of looking for is like when the bandwidth starts, when our ability to communicate via this platform becomes just as high as it would be otherwise, we're starting to reach that kind of threshold point where we're seeing, hey, this modality is actually just as good as other modalities. I think what maybe I'm, this is where I'm being a little bit, trying to be a utopian in a possible dystopian scenario. I do get concerned as a visual person, as a designer, that with all of this push towards text-based words, like texting, whatever it is, I think visually. And some people think with music, some people think emotionally. Mm -hmm. So I think that my hope and kind of what we're doing our internal projects on and our point of view we're trying to build out is that our utopian future, uh, which hopefully is based on science, is that we want to see a future where these thought-based interfaces will allow for plurality of types of thinkers. So not always having to be like thinking with words is text messages, but is there any way that you can embrace the people who were able to think, have feelings and have their feelings, maybe control interfaces or have your ability to think visually also be in, in somehow enabled as well. So as much as there's like this push to try and increase bandwidth, we also want to make sure there's a breadth of ways of thinking because, yeah, I feel like within thinking, there's multiple modalities think, of thinking as well. Just to add a little bit more complexity to the, your original kind of question around benefits of different modalities. Yeah, yeah, and but it's so fascinating this whole this whole idea. I mean, I really like what you mentioned about the, the different levels of thoughts you can have. Right, there are a lot of things going on in the back. There are a little bit more active thoughts that you have, and then like, okay, at which level you actually say, okay, this is actually a command? Because I mean, if you make a a voice command to an assistant to an AI, you that's like a conscious action, right? It already went from the Uh, basically uh, thoughts that were more in the background to the foreground to actually being executed as a voice request but like where do you plug in from thought-based interface and say okay this is the right level of determining that this is actually an intended action right because otherwise things just happen so i think that's kind of super interesting and then also your point around like how to design it accessible because our brains are all working very different. You said about you know, people that are more visual and some of those people think differently. So I think that's super interesting. In one of the talks from Adamas, it was also around the speed that you have with devices and information. You were pointing this out as well, right? That you know, if we have a voice-to-voice or like person-to-person interaction, you have a quite high information density, right? You can actually communicate quite fast. So voice is actually quite fast and text, you know, is uh, slower, obviously. And then like we actually, and this was something he was pointing out that we actually have become slower because now we're typing on the phone, which is slower than on the keyboard. So our information exchange with digital system actually has become slower. And the way to keep up with uh, the way and the speed of AI systems and the speed they can process information and determine outcomes and, 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 and calculate things. We're just going to be too slow with our keyboard and like typing things on the phone because sure. you can actually communicate so much more faster, right? Because an AI to an AI communicates at an incredible speed, right? We would not be able to comprehend. So, you know, if you 
have a sort-based interface, you maybe be able to keep up with it, right? And kind of join that conversation and, and plug into that. So I think that's generally super interesting. Also, what are the different use cases? You know, and then you know, very often with new technologies, you have new technologies being developed in niche industries, right? So actually a lot of new technologies that either come out from, you know, the military is actually developing new, new technologies that then find later on an application for other areas, for everyday people solving a certain problem. And healthcare, I mean, I assume, and that would be a question, healthcare, I guess, is going to be one of the key driving industries for sort-based interface because you can help disabled people. And then it's going to be probably like the main use case for, for the start before we starting to find more applications for more everyday use cases. But yeah, I mean, that would be a little bit the question, what kind of applications you see being developed and how do you see this this industry moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one thing I did a poor job of kind of communicating was the first application is definitely going to be people with a lot of locked-in syndrome and paralysis patients where this would change their quality of life completely. So that's their, that's basically every researcher is that's working in the space right now is helping that community and that's the primary goal right now is to be able to enable that community to have better quality of life i think as a designer i just gravitate naturally towards thinking about what the bigger applications are but i think that what's what's actually really important is to make sure that we're designing things that are benefiting them first of all and then being able to think of what and it happens later but if nothing else they're able to have a better lifestyle quality of life and i think that all of this this work is well worth it because when we were looking at the, a lot of the technology that was developed for this has been in like research, like there's this thing called the Utah array, which is basically a, a six inch tall pole that like sticks into your head. It does pretty much what Neuralink does, but it's wired with a big, like, I don't know, 15 millimeter wire that goes to a computer and you can't leave your bedside. So if anything, they're able to make this a wireless Bluetooth enabled device that you can charge up at night and wake up and it enables paralysis patients to control their um, wheelchair or they're able to um, order something or call their family. That's amazing. That use case right there has just changed a bunch of people's lives completely. And so if that whole use case is, is delivered for then I think that there's a huge win there. I, I think after that, and based on that, so in all honesty, everything that's being done right now, I think is, is a process of learning how the brain works. And so the more we can learn, the more we can kind of validate some of these use cases that we're proposing. What feels like a lot of, of what we've seen in, in the world so far has been that in the world of kind of the, the neuroscience research is a push to try and understand speech. There's a great lab in, in San Francisco that's looking at speech decoding. And if you can start to do that, then you can start to kind of play that game. I think where if I'm in a meeting, say I'm a high functioning CEO and I'm having a, people ask me questions about how things are going with our sales and why they're dropping, I can quickly ask my AI, hey, what happened last quarter? Why are we not delivering on what we promised? And then in the back of my head, that's your bone conduction audio. Another thing to mention, I think a lot of these uh, thought-based interfaces are meant to be bi bi-directional. So actually firing on neurons as well as reading neurons. I think I'm not super well-versed on this, but my gut says that it's a lot, everything towards reading is a lot more advanced than it is towards writing. So in our future, we've like thought of other ways you can start to communicate. So it might be via audio that your AI is able to talk back to you and communicate with you what that information is you're, you're probing it with. So going back to the original use case, so describing you're in this meeting, and you've got this information you don't have, but you can in the background have a thought that says, hey, like, 
tell me what why our what was our sales last quarter and your ai goes picks up the information comes back and in your head it gives you the answer and so without losing a beat without losing your meeting momentum you're able to come back to your audience and say well like the reason we dropped last quarter was because we had the, the blip in our supply chain so basically like being able to be doing things on the fly and having things happening in the background, but still not lose track of where you're at seems to be something that's quite powerful. I think there's this entire other body of research around kind of thought-based interfaces where the emotions you're having are also easy trackable. And so if you're having a, a rough day, we can read that. If you're having a great, if you're euphoric, we can track that. Maybe that's useful painting a picture of a future where we're able to guide you through your day and, and like, figure out how to circumvent certain situations or be there to support you on the AI side of things. Maybe you're in a meeting with, with your therapist and your therapist is able to like go through and understand your, how your week was in terms of your kind of emotional states and then give you guidance as a result of that. There's an entire creative world we've imagined, which is like, imagine if you're an interior designer and you're able to possibly like move around with this kind of motor skill, move around all the furniture and space at the same time and be able to rearrange a space kind of way faster than you could if you were using a mouse and clicking things around, changing the wall colors based on how you're feeling, and maybe creating some sort of like interface that suggesting things based on your overall mood. So understanding where your thoughts are at, your emotional thoughts are at. Sorry, those are a few, few applications we're, we're mulling on. They're all speculative, but they're kind of painting a picture of where we think things would, we would want them to go while still being hopefully grounded in science. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but they're also interesting. I mean, I mean, it's, I think, hard to comprehend what kind of experiences are going to be uh, possible and like even to yeah, dig into kind of, it's everything is pretty new. It's like really working in the unknown. It's an engineering topic right now. And I think we as yep. designers are standing around looking a little bit from the outside and trying to also see how we can contribute to the whole topic, but it's pretty much understanding the brain. It's, it's about science and engineering very much at the moment, right? Yes. And I think as soon as progress is going to be made, I think for designers, there's also going to be opportunity to contribute. And yeah, I think it's super exciting. I mean, also what you mentioned about when things are connected to the internet and, you know, you can read up information or look up something basically what while someone is asking you and you're trying to pick the answer. I mean, there are just like endless amount of problems to solve, I think, also in terms of guidelines and I think policies and how this whole future is going to be designed because your back to speculative design, this could be also taken like in a, depending on how business yeah. models work, could be taken also in a, in a, in a wrong direction. So yeah, I think the topic about ethics is going to be very important. Accessibility, like you're pointing out, inclusion, different people, different, different yeah. types of thinking. So whole world, I think, is opening up there. Super interesting. I mean, another thing is, how do you feel about, I mean, another thing I find kind of interesting is that you were pointing out the interior design example. I think that could be potentially one of the next use cases, I think, where we are seeing, you know, I think first starting obviously with uh, the area of healthcare and trying to, you know, empower people that are disabled or have certain uh, injury basically to have a better life. And I mean, the impact of the technology is just tremendous for uh, these people there. And I think that you can have the biggest impact, that's pretty sure. And then, uh, yeah, and then I think when obviously we talk about our problems we have when it comes to communicating with information, that's more of a luxury problem if you think about it in comparisons, yeah. obviously. But probably, I mean, what you also see with new technologies like AR, is that, you know, very often it starts in industries or, you know, manufacturing, all of these different professional industries where now I can, you know, I, I don't have it 24 hours installed, but I can use it maybe to 
do a certain action, right? I, I do it when, I, when I'm creating a design, right? So temporarily, I think maybe that's going to be one of the next steps where you find where people are just going to be more efficient to do certain tasks before we maybe at some point going to be at the stage where we have an everyday interaction maybe with these technologies but it's going to be very interesting it's all speculation right now it's all yeah and a lot of the thinking we're doing is just building on like our understanding of the things that we know we can do with the brain right now so moving objects in space moving multiple objects in space mm-hmm. and just trying to see like with with our ability to move things what would the ux implications be of that i think what's not exciting for us is necessarily just moving our moving a, a cursor to type on a keyboard it feels like that's, well, it's very useful for the use case where you are a paraplegic um, because at least you're able to carry out that activity. I'm even sure for that audience, there, there must be a better UX paradigm, which the researchers are already exploring, like the research out of Stanford where you're able to use your handwriting as a way to, to type faster is already an example of where they've kind of innovated around the, the, U, the user input in terms of being able to optimize for a higher bandwidth. But I think like anything that can be done around uh, understanding what's where we're at right now and then proposing ux solutions is probably the one of the first steps and i love the metaphor of like the engineers are at work and we're all kind of standing outside yes we are all standing outside and i think as a design studio we're like we want to be the first ones to get in there so we're even kind of preempting it a little bit by being like oh i bet when it works it's going to be like this or like this like this and then being like, hey scientists hey engineers what do you think and they're like maybe that maybe a little bit there but no way over there and so like but we're having that conversation, right? We're engaging with them as much as we can. And we're kind of like fanboys. We're like, hey, hey, can we, can we steal a little bit of your time? We want to show you these ideas. What do you think about them? And then, like, yeah, yeah, we've got some time. Sure. Yeah, that, yeah, that, this looks feasible. We don't think this is so feasible yet. But I think that's also rare for design studios. Not all design studios will take that time to go out there and reach out to neuroscientists and be like, hey, guys, we have some ideas. We want to pitch what we think the future looks like. Can you give us some feedback? So hopefully we're adding to the conversation through just being a bit more proactive with our efforts. Yeah, it's important that, you know, designers get involved because there are certain contributions, I think, that we can make from design side, not so much in terms of like a traditional design side, but I think also in, in uh, also in just in the, in the sense of, I think, facilitation and, and thinking about outcomes and doing uh, user research and, 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 and all of these different things. And modalities as well. I think that earlier point, yeah. like, this will not all be a single modality. And as we're doing these use cases, jumping between different modalities is quite important. Like when is this, where does it, and a lot of the information you're going to be receiving, it can either be audio, but often it will have to be visual. So you have start up here and you end up either on a phone or on a computer screen or somewhere. So this platform will by nature always have to engage with another modality. No, won't always. I think often it will. And so it, it, it will always be rare for it to be. Well, I think in many cases, it's going to be fine for it to be purely happening in, in the, the thought-based modality, but often it'll have to move into other ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super interesting. It's like multimodal interaction, right? Yeah, super interesting. I mean, that would be an additional question I would be interested in. I mean, because you have all that body of work that, you know, plays between digital and physical design, right? And you've been quite involved in it. And now when we talk about thought-based interface, where's the material that you're designing? It's more strategic work right now. And what do you think is the material designers going to design these experiences with? Digital can be a material as well, right? So what's the material people are going to design with? And what's the, what's the importance of tangible 
interface or tangible kind of interactions when we think about thought-based interfaces? That's great questions. Um, I think that uh, because this will be multimodal and it will be like living with the other modes you're interacting with, often it will be building on top of those. So like I said, I, I could still see this living in a world where your materials are still pixels providing visual feedback to a thought input. And I also think that there's just the same way that when voice interfaces were and are still developing and growing, mm -hmm. there's an entire like field of design where it's like designers are they're kind of chameleons in a way. Like, so at some point we like, we blurred with like copywriters and became like conversational designers where we were like designing the chat bots and like that became designed because it had a human element to it, but it also had some sort of logic to it as well. So I think that the modality uh, is going to be somewhere potentially in that world of trying to choreograph how the thoughts are received, acknowledged, interpreted, and making sure that they're the way that the user is interacting with the system, especially for first-time users. And one thing we're still trying to wrap our heads around is a lot of this seems to be based on a lot of deep learning algorithms or the ability for like a learning system to understand your specific way of thinking. So like imagine when you buy, it's, it's like any onboarding experience, like how will you first start to become friends with this system and for it to understand you and for you to understand it. So I think as we're imagining like what that the material could look like, there's a little bit of sensitivity towards how two entities get to know each other, which is pretty much an onboarding experience from a digital perspective. So like what would the onboarding experience look like as the system starts to understand how your brain functions, how to read your brain. And at what point does it feel like it has enough knowledge? And how do you choreograph that user experience that we're having a conversation in our studio and everyone's like, I wouldn't want to buy something and have it only work after a month of like learning me. So like, how do we start to like build out what that onboarding looks like for that? And so maybe that's like a meta material where it's like almost a framework for interaction. So when you first get a product, you start to experience it. When you start to get more familiar with it, you you empower user over time. So like almost choreographing some of those user experience journeys is going to be also part of that ability to another dimension of materiality, I think. Yeah, super interesting to think about, you know, how, because it's a new interaction, people have to get used to, to think a little bit about like, you know, how do you start easy and then get more progressive over time. I also really like what you said about the chameleon, you know, very often as designers, there's a new field building up. We, we somehow partner with that field. We're not like the full experts in that, but we kind of learn how to shape these experiences when you think about voice designers, right? And I think as a voice designer, I also want to think a little bit how, how that visual feedback maybe plays out, right? So it's a lot about the geography, like you said. How do you orchestrate these different, different things and think about holistically? I mean, you're focusing on the voice design, but then you're you automatically think about other outputs and feedbacks and so on. The same with chatbot design. If you think about it, conversational designs, you also think about the visual aspects and how this is reacting back to you. So, yeah, I feel like, you know, back to the point before that you brought up, then, you know, I think it's going to help us to think more to in multi-modalities when it comes to that. And, you know, if we have a background in terms of how visual interfaces work, it's going to help us to design thought-based interfaces because it's always going to play hand in hand. And we had, it's more about orchestration of information. I do feel like we'll, I have a feeling it's going to be a little bit of the headaches of a chatbot though, where 
you're constantly struggling with understanding enough context to have a good conversation. Mm. I think it's going to be the same, but maybe with like having yeah. enough neuronal signals where you can make an assumption around what they're trying to think. I think mm-hmm. being able to just get decent thought, 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 interpreting thought at the level that people are able to kind of connect with the system will probably be the first hurdle we're all trying to see us get over is from the engineering side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very good point, right? If, as a uh, usually a conversational based interface, they struggle with the amount of information they get upfront to make yeah. it a good experience. So it's yeah. always that's always the problem a little bit because they yeah. don't have a lot of data about you. That might be different with a sort based interface where maybe they can plug in into more information or have more uh, a better 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 context. Maybe that's also another layer. Yeah, just just sorry, you're going to be excited about this, but yes, yeah. if you have that data, you have your phone data, you have your location data. It's like yeah, and that's that's kind of what we're all like. That goes back to the business model as well. It's like that's the pro is that if you have a single entity that can meld all this information together and create a, a unified context, that sounds great. But it also creates a monopoly from a business standpoint, which is also mm. quite scary. And I think that's, I have no answers there. I don't know what the solution is between having a great user experience by one entity that can create all the information and contextualize it well for you and not giving that entity so much power that it's kind of scary. Yeah, super interesting. I would love to continue speculating with you and thinking about the future because I think it's such an interesting uh, field and uh, I think tremendous opportunities in the long run for designers to you know participate and yeah a lot of things i think we still have to see how things are going to progress mm-hmm. and but yeah i want to be respective with your time as well so thank you so much for for taking time here on the episode yeah thank you so much yeah it's been a pleasure thank you for having me on it was, it was a great conversation and super great questions so thanks thanks for being so engaging all right that was the episode thank you so much for tuning in If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up and let me know in the comments or by taking me in a post, what were the biggest learnings for you in the episode? I'm always super curious about that. If the episode provided you a lot of value, make sure to follow and subscribe and share it with friends or others so they also have the chance to learn and grow themselves. All right, until next time, cheers.